0: I recently came across this quote from Albert Einstein. And I'm so tempted to try to do an Austrian accent when I read this, but I won't. I am a deeply religious non-believer. This is somewhat of a new kind of religion. My immediate reaction was, me too, Albert. It wasn't always this way for me, however. I was born into a Roman Catholic family. My parents were not at all devout and were seen in churches only at weddings and funerals. They were married in the Catholic Church, but I suspect that this was driven by my mother's Irish immigrant parents who were both devout churchgoers. I was educated kindergarten through graduate school in Roman Catholic institutions. And I took my Catholic beliefs very seriously. So much so that I attended both high school and college seminaries to prepare for the priesthood. I even went on to get a master's degree in theology. So I took this whole thing very seriously. But the more I studied the more cracks began to appear in my personal religious outlook. What ultimately separated me from my Catholic and Christian beliefs was what in theology is called the problem of evil. That problem involves how to reconcile the idea of an all-powerful, all-just, loving God with the massive evil and suffering that we see in the world both natural and human-generated. The classic theological answers to this problem never did satisfy me. The conclusion that I reached was that you had three ways to answer this problem of evil. The personal God of the Abrahamic religions was either not all-powerful, not all-just, or not at all loving. You either ended up with an incompetent or a monster. For me, the only answer to this problem was to conclude that there simply is no such personal God. When I finally admitted this to myself, I felt pretty empty. But I gradually came around to the understanding that it wasn't necessary to have belief in a Neolithic personal God to be spiritual and or religious. I found that I could experience the same sense of wonder, wholeness, and connectedness of my earlier beliefs in connection with an understanding of the natural world. I no longer felt empty, but filled by contemplation of what the Sufis have called the immensity. Two writers in particular were my guides in this new perspective. The first was Carl Sagan. Here are just a couple of examples of his insights. Quote, science is not only compatible with spirituality, it is a profound source of spirituality, end quote. And quote, how is it that hardly any major religion has looked at science and concluded This is better than we thought. The universe is much bigger than our prophets said. Grander, more subtle, and more elegant." No, sorry, that's not the end of the quote. Here's the rest of it. Instead, they say, no, 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 my God is a little God, and I want him to stay that way. A religion, old or new that stressed the magnificence of the universe as revealed by modern science might be able to draw forth reserves of reverence and awe, hardly tapped by the conventional faiths." That's end quote. And the other writer is the man we celebrate today, Charles Darwin. Darwin's insights in his seminal work on the origin of species by means of natural selection remains to this day one of the bedrocks of biological science. But Darwin was a man of his time and culture, and he too struggled struggled with traditional theistic belief in light of his understanding of what is the engine of evolution, natural selection, the mass elimination and suffering of countless species on earth, Tennyson's nature red in tooth and claw. In 1879, he wrote a letter stating that while he had never been an atheist, quote, an agnostic would be the more correct description of my state of mind, end quote. Still, at the end of The Origin of Species, Darwin spoke of a grandeur in this view of life. A grandeur in this view of life. I see in this statement evidence of his deeply spiritual belief. Of what does this grandeur consist? Glenn Geyer, an evolutionary biologist wrote in Psychology Today, an article that talked about the implications of Darwin's theory, spiritually. He highlighted several points. These were the two that spoke to me. All of life on earth derives from the same common ancestors. We are all kin and human universals abound, the way we smile, the experience of romantic love, the love we have for our children. Darwin's passionate and vocal opposition to the institution of slavery during his time serves as a good example of the ethical implications of these insights. In the end, Darwin's science aligned deeply with his values. I'll close with another Carl Sagan gem, quote, we are the local embodiment of a cosmos grown to self-awareness. We have begun to contemplate our origins, star stuff, pondering the stars, End quote. Grandeur indeed. Like Einstein said, I am a deeply religious non-believer. Me too, Albert, me too.
1: Thank you, Mike. Charles Darwin was a Unitarian, a British Unitarian, and yesterday would have been his 212th birthday, hence today's service theme. Our first Unitarian Universalist source of inspiration lifts up that transcending mystery and wonder affirmed in all cultures that moves us to a renewal of the spirit. My earliest experience of that sense of transcending mystery and wonder was lying on the grass in the backyard of my home Staring up at the night sky, looking at the few stars that I could visualize with my naked eyes and feeling disoriented by the hugeness of it all. I remember the sensation as I stared and stared into that darkness, the stars coming into and out of my focus, this sensation that I was falling up into the sky knowing that I was so small on this tiny little planet in this ordinary solar system in one of millions of galaxies. But rather than making me feel insignificant, I had the opposite reaction. Complete and utter awe that our existence and consciousness was possible at all. And then, gratitude. There might have been nothing, but there was not nothing. There was something, and I get to be a part of it. As a child, I wrestled often with religious questions. I'm not sure why. Perhaps it was just my personality. Maybe it was my proximity to mortality as a young child being challenged by health issues. But I did. I wondered a lot about the big questions. And I found answers for a long time in traditional conservative Christianity. It felt comforting to have a personal God in charge of all of the chaos, because I sure knew that I was not in charge of it. But Over time, the nagging questions, the increased awareness of world cultures, beliefs, science, philosophy, my own personal experiences, brought me to a place where that personal God was no longer something that I could believe in. I tried. I wanted to believe. Truth be told, sometimes I still do. I miss that spiritual relationship that I had with that God, the faith and trust I had, the comfort I felt, the challenge that I felt called to live up to, to maintain that relationship. And for those of you who still maintain some version of a relationship with a deity, I fully honor and support your beliefs and your path. But for me, it just didn't fit anymore. I would have been a hypocrite to try to keep claiming that it was my belief. My first Unitarian Universalist church that I found in college had a prayer practice in the middle of each Sunday service. The minister would speak some words that invoked connection, love, comfort, hope, and would lift up the joys and concerns of the community. And the minister would begin that prayer each week with, God of many names, mystery beyond all our naming. That was how I knew I was in the right place. I didn't particularly need to actively reject God, but I needed to widen my lens to that mystery beyond all naming. And that is what it felt like. It felt like a widening, an opening of my heart and my arms, beyond myself to something so much bigger. And in some strange way, that something bigger embraced me back. In college, around the same time that I discovered the Unitarian Universalist Church and this mystery beyond all our naming, I was pre-med, studying science. I was also leading a program on our college campus called Women in Science and Engineering, WISE, W-I-S-E. We college students would coordinate events every month and bring local elementary school girls, fourth through sixth grade to our campus to learn and engage with science. I had fun, no surprise, coming up with cool activities along with inviting professors to help us find ways to make the programs engaging for the kids. And I remember one activity where a professor used a surveying tool like like for building a road and we marked off a timeline on the ground Something like, I don't remember, half an inch was a million years. Now, I don't remember all the details, but the earliest recorded point in history was something like a millimeter away from where we started. And the Earth's formation was many, many blocks down the road, or maybe even miles, I don't remember. But I remember being completely in awe of this visualization of the vastness of time. But again, rather than feeling insignificant, it made me feel part of this total, this whole expanse of time. When I became a minister about 10 years after that college-wise experience, I served at a congregation where the senior minister, Reverend Fred Muir, had a passion for Charles Darwin. He even edited the book, The Whole World Kin, which is a UU book about the intersection of our faith and evolution and a scientific worldview. One time in a meeting, he said, wouldn't it be cool if we could have a summer camp for our kids and we taught them about Darwin and evolution? And with my experience in WISE, I began to work with some amazing volunteers to create Camp Beagle named after the HMS Beagle, which Darwin was aboard when he made his observations that led to the theory of evolution by natural selection. In creating and supporting Camp Beagle for many years, I delved into both the scientific and the spiritual aspects of evolution. We jokingly called it, and it was actually put in the newspaper, headline of the newspaper, Science Church Camp. But it was true. We only shared scientific truths with the campers, but we also instilled in them a powerful sense of interconnection, wonder, awe, and gratitude at the many miracles of our universe and our planet. One of the purposes of religion is to help us answer the big questions of our life, to help us make meaning in our lives. Religion often comes into play in people's lives when things are especially painful, confusing, or complex. As the saying goes, there are no atheists in foxholes, which is not true, and I disagree with that saying, but I agree that many people do seek out the solace, hope, and answers that religion can provide when they are struggling. We heard from Marie, earlier when she said she joined this fellowship after 9-11, and I know others did too. Many of you also joined when a presidential election left you feeling in despair or when you were dealing with a personal crisis or tragedy. The problem with the modern new atheist thinkers and writers like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens is that they don't acknowledge the need that humans have for this support, this comfort, hope, and answers. By blithely eliminating God or deriding people's faith without providing or suggesting something to replace it with, it's, from where I'm standing, irresponsible at best and cruel at worst. Darwin's assessment that there is grandeur in this view of life is the same conclusion that I have also come to. In my own religious searching, which continues today and hopefully will continue until I reach the end of my life, I have come to realize that I am most comfortable with the term religious naturalist to describe my own theological perspective. When it comes to God or God's I am, most of the time, an agnostic. It's not so much that I don't know whether God exists, it's that I feel sure that the answer to the question of God's existence is unknowable. And so I find inspiration and answers to the big questions of religion, or at least the fodder to explore those questions, in the natural world. For many people, this notion that we humans evolved from lower life forms leaves them feeling unimportant. That their worth is intact only if they were intentionally created by a god in God's image and given a special place at the top of the pecking order that is comprised of the many species on this planet. But that is not the only option. We could also know that our evolution over millennia, that our ancestors' survival and adaptation gave rise to what we are today, that the intricacy of our inner ear is thanks to the fish who were bold and brave enough to climb up on land knowing that our brains are struggling to comprehend the amount of information and stimulation that they encounter every day, that the fight-or-flight instincts of our reptilian foreparents, that it's not our fault if we're stressed out, knowing that our opposable thumbs provided some advantage in grasping eating, fighting, building, or whatever it was, to our hominid ancestors, knowing that we are the inheritors of all of the risks, successes, and changes from generation to generation, it's possible that this view of life can fill us with such gratitude and awe and hope for the future because we, too, have the power to adapt if we are bold and brave enough to risk it for the sake of the next generations. Peter Mayer, the UU singer-songwriter, most beloved by, by UUs for his hymn Blue Boat Home, is himself a religious naturalist. When I was in seminary, I once spent about an hour chatting with him about my fantasy of creating a Unitarian Universalist liturgical calendar that was embedded in naturalist cycles. I will never forget his warm embrace of my seminarian enthusiasm. He was such a nice guy. His song, Holy Now, which we just heard beautifully done by Steve, chronicles his personal journey from a faith where miracles were scarce and confined to certain places, certain times, and books, to one where miracles were abundant, from a worldview that put holiness in a tiny box to one that saw holiness everywhere. And so in that spirit, in the spirit of seeking religious answers, through religious naturalism. Would you join me in a moment of reflection, centering, or maybe you wish to think of it as prayer? God of many names, mystery, beyond all our naming, we reach out with our hearts and our minds, beyond the labels, words, stories, and compartments that have limited our view of the miraculous. As we reach out beyond ourselves, beyond our community, beyond our borders, beyond our planet, beyond this galaxy, we feel the enormity of existence. And we know that we are held in it. That there might have been nothing, but there is not nothing. There is something. We know that we are the inheritors of this universal impulse toward existence, light, elements, and life. We know that we are not alone, not here on this earth and perhaps not beyond it. We know that we are not teetering at the top of a pyramid of life, but nestled instead in the comforting branches of the evolutionary tree, surrounded by our ancestors and siblings and cousins, human, animal, and otherwise. We feel the warmth of the interconnections of cells and neurons and atoms, within, and beyond, and between our awareness. We acknowledge the chaos, and we know that it has been with us always. We reach out with our hearts and minds, and we know that you—you that is bigger than each and all of us, whatever we might call you—energy, time, space, love—we know that you reach back and embrace us in your wholeness and in our wholeness too. Amen and may it be so.